The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Genesis 4, there we go, Matthew 28, Revelation 18. That's where we're going to be. And uh, before I do this, just uh, this is our second to last in this uh, uh, biblical theology series that we've been doing. I, I just wanted to first give you guys a, an opportunity to, I don't know, interact, ask questions, if there's things that we can clarify. Um, everybody who's taught any of these sessions is in the room right now. Um, and um, I, I like the idea of being able to have some back and forth and interaction among that. So is anybody out there brave that might have questions or clarifications or anything like that regarding the things that we've studied so far? And that is an overwhelming no. All right. Glad I studied then. So let's uh, just open up in a word of prayer really quickly. Um, I definitely need it. Um, just been wrestling with colds in our whole household and sore throats. I got a cold in my eye. How weird. I've never had a cold in my eye. Every morning I wake up and I'm like, I can't open this eye because it's like sealed shut. It's just crazy. So let's just pray that the Lord will be our teacher, and I'm going to pray for even strength to go through this. God, I just uh, thank you, Lord, for this time with your people, opening up your word, and I pray, God, that your spirit would even join us here this morning and that you would be our teacher, that, God, you would use um, even such as me, flawed as I am, as a mouthpiece for your gospel, for your truth, for your word, for your will. And I pray, God, especially that the, the ultimate um, outworking of our time together tonight would be greater clarity when looking at your scripture, not greater confusion. So, Lord, will you just um, spiritually awaken all of us to understand these things and to see your word tonight? Um, I pray, Lord, for strength, and we pray, Lord, that, that you would just speak to us tonight. So may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O oh, my rock my King, my Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, then I have a question for you, and uh, I want someone to actually respond if they may have answers they want to throw out right now. A um, couple of scenarios, and I'm going to tell you what's going on. I want to know what you think we should do about it, okay? Scenario number one, Billy has a stomachache. Billy has had a stomachache for three days. What should Billy do? We've got to go to the doctor. Anything else? We got questions. How old is he? What else we got out there? What? Say that. Pet just take some Pepto Bismol. All those kind of things. Okay. How about this one? Julie is in a funk. She's got depression-like symptoms. What should you tell her? Change your diet. Yeah. What else? Okay. Anything else? Pray with her. Okay. How about this one? A man is on a bus. His kids are completely out of control, and he's just staring at his phone. What are you thinking as you watch it? He's tired. Look at that. It's very Christian. Like, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. Dude's tired. Yeah. What else? 
You're thinking, dude, get control of your kids. That's the only honest, really honest answer we've gotten so far, just so you guys all know. That's probably what we're thinking. Here, here's, here's kind of the problem. We have this sort of human nature tendency to want to have answers to situations and, and to come to an understanding of situations, oftentimes without knowing a whole lot of information. Happens all the time. So like, let's say, dude on the bus, let's use that as the example. Let's say that his issue is, you're, you're watching him, you're watching these kids run wild, they're obnoxious, they're bugging everybody else on the bus, and you're like, dude, why can't you get a hold of your kids? And if you were to approach him and say, dude, like, don't you see your kids are driving everybody nuts? What if his response was, I- I'm, I'm so sorry, we're actually coming home from the hospital right now, their mother just died, and I haven't even fed them dinner yet, and I'm on my phone just trying to figure out what I'm going to do. All of a sudden you go, ooh, it's a different story, right? Um, Julie's in a funk, depression-like symptoms, what do you tell her? We can have a tendency to jump to an answer on those things without first going, tell me what's going on. Like, I gave you guys shockingly little amounts of information for all of those. And don't be scolded, don't feel bad, because I do the same kind of thing. Like, when I get cut off, it's always personal. If someone cuts me off in the road, it's always personal. It's not an emergency on their part or bad driving on mine. It's always personal. Like we just jump to explanations oftentimes without knowing the whole story. And here's the truth, and this is something that this biblical theology series that we're doing is showing us. Having an understanding of the whole story affects your interpretation of the events that you're looking at. Having an understanding of everything that's going on with this particular man's life as he's on the bus and these kids are running around like crazy helps us understand and better interpret the situation. It's not that he's a bad dad. He might be the best dad we've ever seen, but right now he is overwhelmed and he's just dealing with devastation. And when we think he's not even parenting, he's actually trying to find food for his kids. Or he's just on ESPN He's ignoring his kids like he always does and is completely not self-aware as to what his actions are doing to affect everyone else. The backstory matters, right? And that's the idea of biblical theology. The purpose behind biblical theology is for us to be able to understand all the individual parts of the Bible with respect to how they fit into the whole. And that's really, really important because the Bible is not just a collection of random stories. It is a story. And so to understand how any little individual part fits, we need to understand the whole thing. And, and kind of our failure historically as a church to not look at the Bible in that way can tend to lead to some very significant mistakes, some of which we've met and mentioned before, but we'll do so again today just for the purpose of review, if nothing else. Um, the first can be moralism. So you just look at the Bible as... Um, after we understand the gospel, after we come to Jesus, once we know that Jesus died for our sins, the rest of the Bible is really just either rules or examples of what to do or what not to do and how we are to live for Christ. And now, are there things that we learn about how we're supposed to live? Absolutely. But is that the implied emphasis? And so the classic examples are the story of David and Goliath. As David faces down this giant... What's the, 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 the classic takeaways that Sunday school teachers for decades have been teaching when they've taught that particular passage? If you have faith like David, you can take down giants. Or you get to stories like David and Bathsheba, to use the same guy but in a different direction. What's, what's the moral of that story oftentimes? You be doing what you're supposed to be doing because if you're not, you're going to get in trouble. 
David was supposed to be off at war. Never mind the fact that David would have been at war, but let's just assume he was doing, just do what you're supposed to do, and then you won't get yourself in trouble. That's often the application from that. Books like Nehemiah. These are books, oh, Nehemiah is all about organizational principles and leadership, leadership principles. And there's problems with all those. There's so many problems with all those. Like David and Bathsheba, like what are you even supposed to make about the fact that those, these things happen? Then you look at the New Testament examples where if we're looking at this as examples of things that we're not to do primarily, and then we go to the New Testament and it's upholding these people for their faith, there must be something else happening somewhere in there. Or Nehemiah, it's all about leadership. Well, have you read the whole book? It ends real bad for Nehemiah at the end. Like, he goes kind of Rambo on people, and it doesn't look great for Nehemiah. Certainly not leadership principles you would want to emphasize in your newest Patrick Lencioni leadership book, right? So what do we make of all these things? How do we understand these kind of things? As a second or third or fourth point of application, yes, the Bible teaches us all sorts of things that we should know. Yes, do the things that you're supposed to do. Yes, have faith, all of those kind of things. But all of those things happen um, secondarily. Because if, if the Bible is just a set of rules, then it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense when you think about the thousands of years between the time the Bible story starts and Jesus comes. It just seems like you could have sped the... You could have sped that up a little bit. There's a whole lot of mayhem that went down. There's a whole lot of stuff there that suddenly we have questions about and we don't understand. And how do we explain how the New Testament looks back on David? How do we explain the end of Nehemiah? There's challenges with all of those kind of things, and that can then affect our interpretation of different events. The second thing that can happen if we don't understand the big picture of the Bible is it can reduce the Bible into kind of life's little instruction manual. So the Bible kind of becomes that book that it's just a, a series of proof texts. And, and if we're dealing with a certain thing in life, like relationships or like whatever, then we just go to the Bible and we kind of find those places. Like, I'm, I'm having issues with money. What do I do with money? So we go to the Bible and we find all these random proof texts all over the place about money. And are there things in there that can absolutely teach us? Absolutely. But are there challenges with that? Yeah. I mean, that effectively denies the connectivity of Scripture that's taking place there. It effectively denies the importance of the contextual applications that are there. And then it really makes certain parts of the Bible different difficult to understand because yes there are parts of the scriptures that you read and you go man there's some great advice in that and then you if you're looking at it in the same way you come to other parts of the scripture don't you and you just go what in the world is that there for and then you start looking at it like okay then some parts of the bible seem to be more usable than others and some parts of the bible become more valuable than others and more able for instruction that you go to the new testament it says that all of scripture is given for godly growth, for reproof, for doctrine, for all of these kinds of things. So, but, but I'm looking at it like that going, well, I'm never going to teach that. I'm never going to teach this. So how, how, do we ex how do we explain that? How is it that we're to look at that? Biblical theology understands everything in it. Helps, helps us, I should say. Biblical theology helps us understand everything that's going on in Scripture in light of the grand narrative of everything that's going on. So it puts everything in its, per in its proper place. Does David and Goliath teach us about the importance of faith and confidence in God? Yes, of course it does. But is that the primary story? No. The primary application is, is teaching us about a time when God is going to send his anointed servant. Remember, David has just been anointed as king. God sends his anointed son into battle 
mortal hand-to-hand combat against our greatest enemy on our behalf and understanding things in terms of the overall picture of Scripture all the way through. So the Bible, we have to understand, and biblical theology helps with this, is way more about Jesus before it ever gets to, in any level, being about me. I should have got more amens than just her. (laughs) But it's the truth. The Bible is about Jesus first and second, third, fourth, and fifth, and then us. That's the emphasis of all of this. So biblical theology takes the entirety of Scripture, even things that we might wrestle with and not understand, and it kind of gives the whole Bible back to us. It kind of helps us make understanding and application. It makes the entirety of Scripture valuable. It makes the entirety of Scripture relevant because it presents all of it under the umbrella of the overarching story of everything that's going on. And so the question then would be, so how does that work? Like, so how is that, how do, how do things like that happen? How does all of Scripture become relevant to us in different places where we are? Well, I'm going to show you a little bit today. We're going to actually kind of walk through one together a little bit differently than we have with some of the others, this big, giant, grand, sweeping narrative. We're going to sort of pick a topic and just sort of look at a couple of specific texts, ways that it could be looked at, and then how the understanding from the big picture changes the way that that text is looked at so that we, get, we are then suddenly we have a certain uh, level or, or, or uh, yeah, level of understanding that would not be, we would not be privy to if we didn't look at it the other way. Um, and then we're going to kind of, next week, we're going to sort of wrap all of this up with one big, giant conclusion. And so I'm hoping, if I did this right, that at the end today, we'll be set up for Pastor Jeremy to take us through that part next week. Amen? So I want you guys to turn to Genesis chapter 4. And let me give you the backstory on this as to why we're here. Genesis chapter 4 is right after, and guys, I'm ready to switch over to that, uh, to the old Apple TV thingy right here now, if we may. Genesis chapter 4 gives us kind of the story of Cain and Abel. We have that whole narrative of, of uh, you know, brother murdering brother. It's just a, a terrible, terrible story, especially when you consider it's one generation into all of Scripture, right? Um, but that's where it gets us. And then it starts to break down and follow kind of the lineage of the brothers, the next descendant of Adam that it's going to end up following is the lineage of Seth. The first one it gives us here is kind of the lineage of Cain. And, and this has historically been presented to me. At least I've, I've had some of these things pointed out in teachings in the past, really for much of my life, as examples of here are things that Christians shouldn't get involved in. And it really has to do with culture. So let's make the overall background question that we have in our mind right here. What should Christians view of the culture around us be? Like the things that are going on in the world around us, how do we interact with it? How are we to see it? What is okay for us? What's not okay? Is it good? Is it fallen? Is it bad? How do we approach some of these kind of things? And this is a text that's been used to do it. And the way that it's been presented to me in the, in the past is that right here in Genesis 4, we are seeing the outworkings of a people apart from God, which is true. It is true, because if you look here in Genesis chapter, uh, or Genesis 4, this is the Lord says to Cain, he like drives Cain out, this is the curse, look at verse 11, and now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield to you its strength. You will be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. 
And Cain says to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, verse 15, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. And then Cain went away, and here's a key passage so that we can see that we're not making this up. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Okay? So Cain's family is now going to be descendants of people that have planted outside of this area and have been driven away from the presence of the Lord. And so... What do we learn about them? Well, it talks about how Cain knew a wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. You get out of verse 18 to Enoch. He had these kids with these weird names. Then we get to, chapter, to verse 19, and we have this dude, Lamech. Lamech's a bad dude. Lamech's a murderer, even, as you'll see at the end in verse 23. Lamech says to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. This guy's like boasting in his arrogance that someone touches me, I'm going to kill him. And then he even says, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. This is really interesting. This is almost a little gospel parallel that we will not chase that rabbit trail today. But... A little forgiveness passage. Shake your head if you got it. Good. Just so I. Good. Okay. But here's the part that has been pointed out, for example, to me in the past before. That, and we're dealing with culture here, right? So he has these two wives. Lamech has one wife whose name is Ada, one wife whose name is Zillah. It's not working, is it? Dang it. Technology. Now are we working? Okay, you guys can yell again if it's not working, just so I know. I'm counting on this. Okay, so we have two wives. He's got a wife named Ada and a wife named Zillah. Already off to a good start, by the way, with two wives, right? This dude's legit, obviously. Um, for you at home, there's sarcasm there. Okay, so he has these two wives. Now, it's going to show us the product of his children, right? So verse 20, Ada bore Jabal, and he was the father of of those who dwell in tents and have livestock, okay? So here's kind of like his contributions to society, you might say. And we could call this um, agriculture. Um, you could say housing, right? Farming, whatever you want to call that. All those things are in this, right? Who dwell in tents and have livestock. Everybody see that? Okay, his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. What's he talking about here? Music, right? This is the first mention of musical instruments or music reference to any of that anywhere in the scripture, which uh, for those who uh, look at this in the way that I'm going to go against, they say that's a real big deal, and I'll show you in a minute why I think they're wrong. But um, his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. So this is music, this is art, right? Remember, for a people apart from God's presence, right? Keep that in mind. Then verse 22, Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. So what is that? This is industry. Tools. 
Um, those who taught me and have pointed some of this out before love to emphasize also uh, weapons, which is true, and maybe idols. Possibly, yes. But, so here we have these three things. So right here, in the descendants of Cain, people apart from God, what do we have here? Agriculture, housing, farming, music, art, industry, tools, weapons, yeah, idols. I mean, what, all, what, what is all this? This is culture. This is the kind of culture that's around now. I mean, what would make up the culture that we live in? The industries, farming, how people make their living, the arts. Culture is a big part of your arts. Um, different cultures are identified even by their arts, their music. They have unique styles. You'll notice that any you travel anywhere around the world. It's so weird. I've, I've never understood some of that kind of stuff because I listen to our music and I'm like, ours is so clearly better. Why don't they listen to our music? And they all listen to whether it be tribal music or Mexican music or whatever. Well, it's because you grow up with this certain culture and you have certain kinds of music that are identified with your culture. And most people tend to kind of stick to some of those things, but those are cultural identifiers, correct? Everybody with me on this? Yes? Yeah. Right? So this is culture or what often is referred to in the same way, but with a little more negative, less spiritual connotations, is what? The world. So this is culture, and this is the world. So what are we to think about these things? And this is what ha has been explained to me. It's like, look, man, first of all, dwelling in tents and having livestock seems to be somewhat benign, right? How can that be bad? And then they would say, oh, but this is before the temple, so these aren't temple sacrifice things. This is just personal wealth. So this stuff will get translated to possessions or wealth. And already you're kind of playing with Scripture a little bit. You're kind of drawing some implications, but that's what's being done. Music, anybody that grew up in a denominational fundamentalist church, they're like, we don't, this is the easy one, right? Music, see, it's bad. Its roots are bad. This is why music is bad. And you should not have anything to do with music of the world. And backward masking is bad. I saw the funniest thing on Twitter the other day. It said, um, if you play, what was the band? It's the one everybody makes fun of all the time. And I think it's Nickelback. And they said, if you play Nickelback's music in reverse, there are satanic messages. But even worse, if you play it forward, you hear Nickelback. <laughs> I thought, oh, that's really funny. Those poor guys. I don't know. They're Canadians, though, so whatever. Anyway, um, so music. This is bad, right? Music is, is bad. And then you get down here, instruments of bronze and iron. And let's forget the idea of using them for tools or industry. But we can focus on weapons. That's bad. Idols. That's bad. And you can say, see? See? These are not the things that God intended for us. They came out of a descendant that God is pointing out that had nothing to do with him. So is that true? Is that where to think about it? And you go, that's a really random text for you to draw from, Jeff. Genesis 4, we don't even read that in our devotions. We skip these parts and get to the better parts of the story, right? Okay, now go to Revelation. Look at Revelation 18. In Revelation 18, now... There are so many people with so many opinions about what is Revelation 18 really about. It's, this is the fall of Babylon. And people will say, okay, it's apocalyptic literature. It's full of figures of speech. It's full of pictures that are meant to tell us stories and help us understand things. And so there's a lot of debate. What is Babylon really 
mean? Because even for our day, if this is future, Babylon's kind of gone. Is this a literal Babylon? Is it some believe that the city of Babylon will one day be completely rebuilt and it will be a world-dominant power? Others say it's even America, and they'll go through some of the different things when you see with regards to industry and spreading things all over the world, and they'll say no country has had the ability to do this before like America has. Some will say, no, it's just a spirit that's among people. Um, so there's a lot of different definitions for this, and, but, but you can at least say this. We can at least say that Babylon clearly represents humanity that is organized in its opposition to God, clearly. Now, who that humanity is and all that kind of stuff, we can debate it. But if we just can all agree on the idea that Babylon represents humanity that is organized in its opposition to God, well, what does it tell us here? After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with its glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of her passion of her sexual immorality. The kings of earth have committed immorality with her. The merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her living. And I heard another voice saying, come out of her, my people. Important passage for the fundamentalist approach on here. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. And this passage goes on, and it's a pronunciation of judgment upon Babylon. This, as we are agreeing on, this organized humanity against God. Now I want you to read, let's look at verses 21. And read verse 21 through the end here, thinking of what we just read in Genesis chapter 4. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon the great city be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of the harpist and musicians of flute players and trumpets will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be heard in you no more. The sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of the harp will shine in you no more. And the voice of the bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants are the great ones of earth. And all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. And so the application that can come out of that, that I have been taught before in just taking these two texts without consideration of the story of a whole, without consideration of context, without consideration of all these things, is this. We shouldn't have anything to do with some of these different cultural things that are going on. They become proof texts for an isolationist type of living that says, okay, we can't have anything to do with that sort of culture, Babylon. And so, so the fundamentalist approach to that would say, all right, then we need to insulate ourselves from the world. We need to do exactly what this text told us right here. Come out of her. Where was I that I highlighted that? Whatever, you guys saw it. Come out of her. Have nothing to do with her. We need to separate. And so we're not going to have anything to do with the culture out there. We'll create our own culture. And our culture will be God-based. And weirdly enough, what usually happens is we create a culture that in a lot of ways looks actually really identical to the culture that we're a part of. It's just like a baptized version of it. So like that's why all Christian music sounds like you too, right? It does. It does. They've been ripping you two off for years. You guys know that. But 
So this is, this is kind of what has been taught many places. Do you see? This kind of stuff is bad. This kind of stuff is bad. This is all bad. Okay. Well, then what do we do about that? What do we think about that? Is that true? I mean, because if that's true, and it's right there in the text, then Christians shouldn't have anything to do with secular movies, television shows. We shouldn't participate in the sports that the world's a part of. We should have nothing to do with any of those things that are out there. Well, that's where context comes in. That's where understanding the whole story actually matters in actually quite a big way. So in Genesis chapter 1, we have this thing that starts out. It's called the, the cultural mandate. And actually, if you would, just turn there. We're done in Revelation for right now. Turn to Genesis chapter 1 and look at this. I think I'm done with this thing now, if you want to flip that back. In the creation... We'll even start in verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the bird of the heavens, and every living thing that moves around across the earth. So if you're a note taker in your Bible, that verse right there is one you would want to underline or circle or whatever, and you refer to that as the cultural mandate. God calls humanity, and the words that are there, it's more than just have babies. It's build society. It's build culture. And you go, well, but that's different because culture wasn't fallen yet. You're absolutely right. It absolutely has not fallen yet. Sin has not entered into the picture yet. But God calls Adam and Eve to build culture, to build society, to go and, and fill the earth, it says, and subdue it. And so then what happens? Well, the story of Genesis 3 happens. Sin enters into the picture. It's a broken world. Then Genesis 4, which we were in just a minute ago, happens, where now we've got brother killing brother and fighting over it, hiding from God, arguing with God about it, all these kind of things. And then we get that kind of Cain background that just seems like we're tracking or tracing um, th this lineage and all of their outproduction or all of the, the end result of them are these, these cultural things that, that say a fundamentalist push, and whether we want to admit it or not, all of us in denominational or non-denominational Christianity today, uh, the, the fundamentalist church, is our, those are our forefathers here in America. It is absolutely true. And so they would say, see, fallen world came. It's been all bad ever since. You see the outworkings of these things. We shouldn't have anything to do with any of that kind of stuff. We should insulate. But the problem is if you understand the whole of Scripture and you start kind of reading all of it, there's something that happens in Genesis 9 that's hard to explain. Because in Genesis 9, the flood takes place, right? And in Genesis 9, verse 1, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, the fear and dread of you upon every beast and upon every beast of the heavens. He, he institutes the curse, as you see here, this idea of the beast or there's fear upon every bird of the heavens, everything that creeps on the ground, fish of the sea into your hand, they're delivered. Every moving thing that lives will be food for you. As I gave green plants, I give you everything, but you should not eat of the flesh of its life with it is blood. There's, there's this kind of upholding of the curse, though he's going to put a new emphasis on image of God, but that's a story for another day. But there's a reiteration of the cultural mandate. 
that Christians are to go and build culture, build society, build cities, build all these kind of things. And further challenging that kind of view is the difficulty where Revelation 18 that teaches all this stuff about fallen Babylon, just a couple of chapters later you get into the idea that Jesus comes, Babylon is judged, the enemy is thrown into the pit, our saviors arrived in person, and then what's the very next thing it says? It says, behold, I see a new heaven and a new earth. Jerusalem, the city, now appears to the people. And there's a city, and what's it filled with? Trees, agriculture, art, even the gates are described like pearls in their beauty, music, worship, all these things that a fundamentalist movement would say that we're supposed to push against, would say, well, now they're in the new city. And so the question then becomes this, are they bad? Is that what's bad? And so is the call of Christians then to insulate ourselves and pull away from all of these things and have nothing to do with the stuff that's out there? Because if that's the case, then it doesn't make sense that if that's the overall thrust of why Genesis 4 tells us this stuff about Cain and his family, how do you explain when you, then you go to Seth's lineage and eventually in Seth's lineage we end up with this city called Babel? The Tower of Babel, you guys know that story? And they're building a city there, but this is the godly lineage, is it not? So what's the difference? What is, why is one, what are we to make of culture? How are we to think about these things in that? And here's what I would say. When you understand all this whole scripture, what is it that's actually being taken place? So go to the Tower of Babel story. And in the Tower of Babel story, what is it that they say? They're building a culture. They're building a city. They're building it. But what is it that they say? So that our name might be great. We will make a name for what? Ourselves. Think about this. When you trace down the lineage of the people of Cain, out of all the things that take place out of there that they're told about, what are they known for? Well, they're known for their industry. They're known for their agriculture. They're known for their art. They're known for their music. They're known for these things. What is Seth's lineage known for? When you go into Genesis 5 and you read the lineage of the people that, of Seth's descendants, the only thing it tells us about those people as it goes through is that they are people who called out for the name of the Lord. They called out to the Lord. Now, does that mean that Seth's, there were no one in Seth's line that had anything to do with art or culture or agriculture or any of those things? That can't be true because Israel's entire history throughout the rest of the scriptures is all going to be agrarian. So at least agriculture and things like that had to do with it. Then what's it telling us? What's the point of all of this stuff? I think the honest truth is that in the end, it's an issue of the heart. And I think that's the point of all of Scripture. Seth's descendants are known for their reliance on God and their identity in God. Cain's descendants are simply known for the things that they could build with their own hands. And it's a matter of the idols they're serving, what they live. Revelation, a new city comes, but what's the purpose of the new city? Opposite of the Tower of Babel, this is a city that is filled with the glory of God. The scriptures tell us that there's no more need even for sun or stars or any of those things because the glory of God will keep these things lit. So the purpose of this new city, it's not that cities are bad. He's building a city. The issue is, what's the purpose of the city? What's the purpose of the heart inside? What's the purpose of these things? It's an issue of the heart. But then we can proof text and go way too far the other way, right? You go, okay. Then if the fundamentalist viewpoint was, no, these things are bad, then fine, let's just be about all of these things too. But is that what we're actually to be about? I want to take you back to the cultural mandate. Go and fill the earth and subdue it. That's what he tells them. 
What is God telling them to fill the earth with? He's telling them to fill the earth with, before the fall, image bearers of God. He's, the fall hasn't happened yet. They're created in the image of God. They're created to live for the glory of God. And he's telling them, go fill the earth and subdue it. Now look at Matthew chapter 28 and notice something kind of interesting. At least I find it interesting. I may have wasted all your guys' time. You never know. But for the record, I did give you opportunity to ask questions at the beginning. So it's kind of on you. Just so you know, Matthew 28, when the great commission is given to the church, Jesus came to them, verse 18, and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. What's he telling them to do? What's he telling the church to do? Go fill the earth. With what? Christians. Go spread the gospel. Go show people the reality of who Jesus is. So how do we do that? Sometimes we use culture. We can use music. We can use art. We can use stories. We can use iPhones or Siri. Did Siri just respond to me, by the way? That's awesome. In a cultural teaching, Siri just answered me. That's awesome. What did she say? Oh, good. Pay attention, Siri. Pay better attention, Siri. So what, what, what's the point then? To take one text, a proof text, or even two out of that other, and just try to proof text those as things that we should say. Therefore, we are to step out of and have nothing to do with culture. Here's the reality of it. I don't, I, the culture is not the issue. The issue from the beginning, the issue in the Great Commission, the issue even into Revelation when the perfected cities come has not been about culture, but been about souls. Uh, uh, Michael Lawrence, one of my professors from up at Western Seminary, had a quote that I, I meant to write down, and I completely forgot to do it today. But he basically said, look, Christians are not in, uh, we are not in the role of cultural renewal. We are into the, the job or the business of the salvation of souls. And we get either one of those things out of whack then we end up being off. Because in the same way that fundamentalists would say that we need to withdraw from the culture and create our own culture, it's really hard to make disciples amongst non-believers if you've withdrawn from culture, right? It's kind of tough to do. And culture, I like that Jeremy put it when we were talking about it today. He was like, it's sort of the water you swim in. Like, I don't care what you do. You, you can only separate from culture so much. And if you're here and you're thinking, no, not me, not me. I mean, I, I would argue even the clothes that we wear identify us with the culture that we're in. For better or for worse, we're part of it. The issue is, what are you doing with it? What are we living for? What's the purpose behind all of it? And so, on one hand, you have the fundamentalists that would say, no, we need to withdraw from all these kind of things, but that makes it really difficult to do the cultural mandate, which God seems to consistently put before his people all the way through Scripture. But at the same time, you can have sort of a, uh, let's call it an evangelical overswing, where the pendulum comes too far the other way, and we go, see, then we are all about culture, man. We, can, we need to do everything we can to look like everybody out there, and suddenly all your emphasis is on just looking like everyone else, and you forget the fact that God was calling people to be distinct, because the purpose was to fill the earth with people who look like and are identified by their relationship with God, not just that we look like everyone else. That's what Cess line was known for. 
He's not noted in scriptures for the things that they did. They're not noted for their agriculture. They're not noted for how they made a living. And obviously, they had to do those things. The thing that they're upheld for, the thing that they're noted for, is that they called on the name of the Lord. And so then we go, man, that affects kind of everything. So what do we do? We're not in a culture war. We're in a war for souls. And so if we can use culture and engage culture for the purpose of winning people to Jesus, so be it. The culture is not the end result. But at the same time, then, secondarily, we can step back and we can look at Babylon and go, but man, Babylon's a great warning to those who engage or uh, uh, cling to the world without calling on the name of the Lord. That those things lead to destruction. Those things lead to death. And there becomes a sort of a healthy balance in those things. It says, okay, I mean, this is the culture that I, that I live in. And so I, I can engage people here and I can relate to people and all this kind of stuff. But at the same time, I won't be one who is identified by those things because I am distinct. I am a child of God. I have been saved, set apart, and marked with the Spirit of God. And so, so I am going to be distinct yet engaged. You see the same thing in the book of Jeremiah when the people had been taken into actual Babylon, actually. And in Jeremiah, it, it, the people were trying to figure out, what do we do? Like, we, we've been carried away into captivity, and we've got this city, and they had these people that were telling them, the Bible actually calls them false prophets, that were telling the people of Israel, settle outside the city, have nothing to do with the city, don't go in there, don't do anything, don't have anything to do with them, but just live right outside the city so you can at least live off, if you will, live off of the city, but have nothing to do with them. Well, the Babylonian people we're wanting Israel to absolutely immerse into the city and lose their identity as Christians, or excuse me, as Israelis altogether. Just move in, intermarry. After a few generations, there'll be no such thing as the people of God. There'll be no such thing as the nation of Israel. You're us now. Israel doesn't exist. Just move on and get it. So you have false prophets. Interestingly, though, the Bible calls false prophets that are saying, insulate and withdraw. And then you have the wicked prophets, you might say, the people of Babylon that are saying, just be just like us. And then what does God say? Go into the city. Build society. Have families. Have businesses. Live amongst the people of the city. But retain your identity as people of God. And I think that's something that the church right now, if you want to celebrate something cool that's happening in Christianity in a lot of ways, this new renewed identity, or, or excuse me, renewed emphasis on mission and on cultural engagement is a great thing for the sake of the Great Commission as long as it doesn't go too far. Because if you go too far, you become just like the world. You're, it's as if it doesn't, doesn't even matter. You have no, no light whatsoever. You're just like them. But if you withdraw, you'll never convert any of them. And so God calls us to do both. And so do you see how like then understanding the flow of those things in the whole picture actually informs us of how to read the small picture? Does that make sense or did I just lose all of you guys with this stuff today? I'm pretending in my mind everyone's, Siri, did that make sense? <laughs> okay, so if that's the case, just think about the things we've looked at over the past few weeks. Discipleship and its call throughout Scripture. We've looked at kingdom and the idea of the kingdom of God and God building his kingdom and calling his people. And how it starts with Adam and Eve and works its way all the way through to the point where God has fully gathered his people. We've looked at, uh, what's the other one? Sam, what did you just teach on? 
glory, the glory of God and the idea of the, the earth being filled with the glory. We just saw in Revelation, the end result is that the city is filled with the glory of God. We've seen all of these things. Even today, we understand now mission with regards to culture, we under, with culture and, and the, the idea of the mission of God and all these kind of things. But, but what, with what? And like, what's the overall point of all that kind of stuff? Well, next week, this is my segue. This is your cliffhanger. So binge-watching kind of a thing. This is what keeps you guys watching Netflix over and over and over, except you're going to have to wait till next week because we're not releasing the whole season at once. Next week, Jeremy is going to kind of bring this to a closure, and we're going to look at Jesus and the gospel through the scriptures. Like, what is, how do we see that emphasis in all these different places? Understanding of the gospel from beginning to end. The thing that we're supposed to be carrying to the culture around us. The thing that mission is all about. The thing that makes the kingdom of God possible. All of these things. How do we see those things in scripture and trying to understand scripture through that big picture? Amen? Amen. So look, we're going to freak Brent out because I always go long. I have 10 more minutes and we're done. So will you guys stand and let's pray. And I, you know what would be awesome? If you go over there and you're waiting for your kids, tell them, hurry up, hurry up. No, just kidding. Don't do that. Don't do that. They'll throw things at you. Father, I just pray, God, you would, you would help us to understand your word and your will to a greater and greater degree. Lord, in all of these things, it could be so easy for us to just go through and point out things in Scripture that are interesting to us and yet have no real application or place in our life. And Lord, we see from even New Testament examples of your Scripture that your Scripture is given that we might grow more and more like you. So Father, I just pray that you would do that with those that are here. Lord, those that are here tonight because they have a desire to know you and understand your word to a greater and greater degree, I pray that that would be the case. Help us to see the big picture of all that you're doing. Help us, Lord, to see the grand design of all things. Help us to see, Lord, the big story of what you have done and what you've given us. And then help us, Lord, to see how that not just gives us understanding of the smaller stories in Scripture, but also helps us to apply those very things to our lives. I pray, God, you would protect us from random moralism. I pray, God, you would protect us, Lord, from reducing the Bible to just proof texts or advice, but help us, God, to see more and more that this book is about you and your ongoing work and the spread of your glory and the call of your people. And then, Lord, help us to understand our place in it, not making it about us, but about you and how we can serve you better and grow in you better and tell others about you better. Lord, will you do this? Will you give us understanding by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. All God's people said, Amen. God bless. Have a great night.